I'm Nick Harvey-Doyle, a Ngunnawan man from the northern tablelands of New South Wales. The Yarn podcast is made on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong people. We'd like to acknowledge First Nations people as the first storytellers. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn. I'm Thomas Phillips. This week, we're confronting taboos, examining what happens when doing the right thing means breaking the rules. It's our second episode of Breaking the Binaries, our new series about the intersections that blend, blur, or break society's binary codes. And today, we're bringing you four stories about what happens when you challenge society's norms. These stories were produced in collaboration with all the best mentors for the Science Gallery's new show, an immersive exhibition about breaking binaries, which is open now. Up first, Sean Roos investigates why honesty isn't always the best policy. Can you think of a time it would be more nice to tell a little bit of a lie than tell someone the truth? No. Really? Not even a little white lie. So you should never lie, you think? No, never, ever. This is Arthur. He's five years old and no fan of lying. And can you blame him? We're told from birth that lying is wrong, that it's malicious and self-serving, an evil sin in almost every religion. But as anyone who's ever complimented their friend on their hideous new outfit would know, sometimes honesty is not the best policy. So could lying perhaps be good? So I define pro-social lies as false statements that are made with the intention of misleading and benefiting others. This is Dr. Matt Lapoli, a researcher and social scientist who studies pro-social behavior. People sometimes tell lies with good intentions when they perceive uh, that doing so can prevent unnecessary harm to others. This all begins when we're about four years old and is seen as a crucial milestone for our cognitive development. As we begin to understand the mental states of others and gain empathy, we also figure out how to deceive people, both for our own gain and theirs. It seems to emerge around the time that executive functions start to blossom, because if, if you think about it, it requires some complex thinking to tell a, a pro-social lie, because you need to first understand that you have information that other people don't, and you also have to infer that doing so is going to make them feel better or to help them in some way. While on one hand we're told that lying's bad, it becomes clear pretty early that brutal honesty is not much better. Arthur's mom, Jenna, says this is something her three-year-old Patty is yet to fully grasp. We were in a doctor's surgery and, and Patty noticed a lady who came in and the lady was um, a bigger lady. And so he, he pointed that out on a number of occasions. But then, yeah, there is that balance of it not hurting someone's feelings by being too honest. Patty's, let's say, forthrightness shows exactly why pro-social lying is closely associated with emotions like empathy and compassion. But while it's one thing lying to a stranger, how about when it comes to our most intimate relationships? 
surely lying to our romantic partners is bad because honesty is sacred, right? Ava and I have been dating for a long time and so I reckon deep down I possibly know she's kind of lying to me as well, but I'm okay to be actively lied to. This is Bonner. Her and Ava have been going out for about three years. Their fondness for deception might sound strange, but it turns out that less than a third of us think that complete honesty is critical for a good relationship. Ava admitted the time she lied the most was when she felt there was nothing Bonner could do about a situation. Like when you made a bunch of purchases for your kitchen that like I wouldn't have made, mm. but you'd already done it. So there's no point yeah. in me saying, oh, that's a big amount of money to spend on a cup. I'm just like, nice cups, because it's just not useful. I just realized the neighbors probably think we're in couples therapy. <laughs> Dr. Lapoli says in these situations, where there's no instrumental value to honesty, would actually prefer being lied to. His research has even shown that pro-social lying can increase what's known as benevolence-based trust between us. But before you go around lovingly lying to your other halves, you better be sure that it's actually going to help them. When there is certainty about the consequences, when the lie has clear benefits over honesty, people are okay being lied to. In fact, they prefer it. But when it's not clear, then people actually hate being lied to. With all these benefits of pro-social lying, I was reminded again of young Arthur. He said he would never, ever, ever lie. And I wondered how he would fare in a world where everyone from strangers to loved ones expected, even encouraged us to do so. But then, as we were wrapping up our chat together, I finally noticed it. Did you have a, was this fun? Wow, was it boring to you? No, not to me, but maybe it was to you. Well, can we talk about Kamolgis? I didn't know what Kamolgis were, but I could tell by his unconvincing tone and unsubtle change of topic that he'd lied. And he'd done so for my benefit. He'd lied pro-socially. That was Sean Roos. Next. Sometimes what the heart wants isn't what your family wants. Anya Tandon investigates interfaith marriages. What made you want to marry each other? I'm thinking. <laughs> well, I guess uh, I had dated in the past and somehow he felt very sincere and honest. I had not dated in the past. And I had no benchmark to go by. <laughs> How long have you been together? Uh, 91. 31 years. 31. Let's talk about what it was like trying to get married. Marriage was not on the card. In India, men actually don't get married so early. It's the girls and from Muslim families. Boys from... Hindu houses don't get married until they've like kind of settled in uh, their jobs for at least about four or five years. And then Dado, when the topic of marriage came around, how did your family react to it? Not well, obviously, because uh, it was with the Muslim. And I think for many people in that time, it could be anybody but a Muslim, all because the previous generations had unfortunately seen partition. And there was the bias that was there. 
Back in 1947, when British India was divided to form independent Pakistan and India, millions of Muslims and Hindus had to leave their families and ancestral homes and relocate to the country where their religion would be more tolerated. It was a massive refugee crisis, and people witnessed unbelievable acts of violence during this time. Even today, there's a strained relationship between Hindus and Muslims in India, and communal violence is rampant in the country. More than parental disapproval, I think it was social criticism that, uh, you know, we are all scared of. And then you were supposed to get married earlier than you actually did, right? Yeah, we actually registered our marriage in 1994. Obviously, because I belong to a Muslim community and because I was in a Muslim area, somebody had obviously seen it or the word had gone around. So they started to make some calls to my dad to say that uh, we are not going to let this marriage happen. And if this marriage goes through, then your other two children will not have a very nice whatever. So they kind of threatened. So my mom, one day before the wedding, she left. So I didn't go to the registrar's office. She didn't go on the day of her wedding. Can you believe it? Her best friend remembers it clearly. (laughs) Didn't show up for the wedding. She didn't show up. There was a situation of, I think your father had already got into the train in Delhi. He didn't even know she was not coming to the wedding as far as I can remember. He turned up at the station in Hyderabad and then that was when he, I think he got to know that she was not planning to... She was, he was being ditched at the altar. I mean, that I thought was only a phrase. But in that case, it was actually true. What, what was your reaction then? Uh, we travelled to Hyderabad. All is good. And suddenly we realised that he... No, but I didn't read. And then what happened? You guys stay together? No. For almost a year, we I, I don't think we spoke. Because he had just kind of, you know... Said, no, and you also have to appreciate that this is... 94, social media, TDR, nothing was there. Internet was not there. I think uh, emails had just about begun to come in. And then during that time when you were off, did you think it would be easier to choose someone from your own religion? Yeah, I did. Because my my family did. And I was like too fed up of this entire thing. Three, four years of this constant disapproval. I said, okay, to hell with him. And then now... You'll never guess what got my parents back together. His dog died. And then he called me and he was crying. And so I didn't hear who had died. He kept saying somebody had died. And I was like, what? Somebody died? What? And he was crying. <laughs> and then when he told me the dog died, I was like, okay, okay. But even then, by that time, I think I had got kind of verbally engaged to somebody. You know, I never took it seriously. I didn't think she'd go through with all that. But I always felt they'd get back together probably. Your mother gets what she wants, if you've not realized that. How much basis do you think there is when people say Hindus and Muslims are fundamentally different and that's why they shouldn't get married? No, no difference at all. It is the human values that matter. I'm getting married to a good human being. Religion is only as important as you make it to be. Whatever problems they went through during that era of trying to get married, they've had a great marriage. That was Anya Tandon. In our third story, Serena Raza explains how her religious conversion upended her entire life and how she found solace in a new home. I was raised a second-generation Australian to a family of hyper-Catholics hailing from a little-known island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. 
My maternal grandparents immigrated to Melbourne in the 1950s from the island of Gozo, belonging to the archipelago of Malta, a country so Catholic that one can find more than one church per square kilometre and a picture of the Pope in every home. And such was ours, a modest weatherboard house built from the ground up by my grandfather himself, its walls adorned with images of the Virgin Mary and a statue of a saint placed in every room. Our home was full of the sounds of the rustic Gozidan dialect of Maltese, a Semitic language rooted in the now obsolete secular Arabic. One might have called us indigenous Maltese, but nobody really knows who the original Maltese were. From Malta's history has seen the islands be conquered by almost everyone, from the Byzantines to the Arabs, to the Normans and then to the Spanish, the Italian, the French and finally the British. Malta only gained her independence in 1964, and she has since faced one hell of an identity crisis. The original Maltese are said to be Phoenicians, but the people that would have the most lasting influence on the island's inhabitants were, in fact, the Arabs. Despite this, Malta largely denies any Arab identity, and an incessant othering of the Arab and the Muslim has been deeply ingrained in the Maltese psyche. Malta's 200 years of Islamic rule saw the Maltese largely convert from Orthodox Christianity to Islam. It also gave the nation its language, the island's place names, the people's surnames, and influenced agriculture, architecture, the foods produced, the ways that they were cooked, and the style of folk songs sang by the farmers who cultivated them. The invasion of the Normans saw the commencement of a campaign of Latinization and the introduction of Roman Catholicism to the islands. A succession of European invaders over many hundreds of years continued this campaign until 95% of the Maltese were converted from Islam to Catholicism and firmly believed themselves to be European, while the Muslim was damned as but infidel and other, which can still be seen today. At 18, when I left the Catholic Church and converted to Shia Islam, I too was damned as other, and denied by the only culture that I had ever known. I will never forget the night that I took my Shahada, the Islamic declaration of faith, and the sense of wholeness that I felt upon its completion. Little did I know, though, that my entire being was about to be torn in two. One comprised of my ancestry, my family, my culture and my identity, and the other of my beliefs, the man that I loved and a place that I would truly find God. By becoming a Muslim, I assumed that I could remain Maltese. The Maltese, however, were very quick to make it abundantly clear to me that I could no longer call myself Maltese and a Muslim at the same time. I often reflect on my conversion as like being thrown out of home. A home that I naively thought that I could always return to, no matter how far out into the world that I strayed. A home safe and constant, a place that I could sleep soundly in, comforted by the faint echoes of my late grandmother's nightly utterances of the rosary. Instead, I was thrust out into the world and found myself in the most volatile, terrifying and incredible place on earth. There is one place once described as the world's most dangerous country, Pakistan. 
and it was there that I was welcomed with open arms, taken in, and offered a new home. As a teenage bride, I landed in the subcontinent, perpetually overwhelmed, lost in a sea of comings and goings, forever attempting to navigate the ever-dark and claustrophobic, anarchical wasteland that was Karachi, Pakistan. I often wonder what my experience of the division of ethnicity and religion might mean for my own children, who too bleed Maltese blood but may never be recognised as Maltese. For now, they remain three personifications of the binary that I broke, and may one day create a new, unique culture of their own. That was Serena Raza. Today's final story is about a profession that navigates one of our biggest taboos by confronting the topic none of us want to talk about, the end of life. Sasha Gadamaya reports on death doulas. The story begins with an ending. In fact, all stories do. As soon as we're born, we begin to die. We start shedding and regenerating cells from birth. According to researchers at Simon Fraser University in Canada, cognitive speed starts dropping from age 24. By 55 years old, we lose control of our DNA. Life is a constant process of death. One group of people who understand this concept well are death doulas, practitioners who guide dying people and their relatives through the last stages of their life. Like birth doulas, end-of-life doulas prepare and nurture you for this second great life transition. You know, the family hires us, and that might be the dying person. It might be, it might be a family member that hires us that wants us to support the people around the dying person. Renee Adair is the founder of the Australian Doula College. She's a birth doula as well as a death doula. Her Instagram handle is at womb to tomb. And then our job is to be with them, but but move within the system. So, you know, to sometimes advocate for the family for their needs and wishes and desires, you know, help them do their planning, if you like, and take that information to the healthcare providers. Sometimes I feel like too, we're a bit of a translator you know, a lot of medical um, jargon needs breaking down. Another person in this space is Kimber Griffith, the owner of funeral service The Last Hurrah. She provides personal and authentic end-of-life ceremonies in Melbourne. She first entered the industry as a death doula in 2012. The classic idea of a death doula is that, you know, you're, they're there holding vigil at someone's bedside. But to be honest, at that point, the person who's dying very rarely needs you. Um, that's a big difference between a birth doula and a death doula. So with a birth doula, the birthing woman needs you more and more and more, and on the day of the birth, they need you there, you know, whereas with a death doula, ideally, when they go into their active dying, you're more focused on the people that are supporting the dying person, like making sure how long have you been here? Oh, two days without a shower. Do you want to go home and I can stick? Kimba, managing the arrival of death for those who are still living is a big part of her job. You know, I had a, um, someone I was working with who died last night um, and I had the hospital was calling me to go in and I, I was doing that. And the thing was that person hadn't connected me with their family because I think they were young and they just didn't 
you know, they didn't know, uh, they didn't want to talk about dying really. So, and they, they wanted me to come in, but then when I come in, they were kind of conflicted. And so I went in uh, a couple of days ago and I, I was like, okay, I can see that they're starting to be actively dying now. This is a change. So like I wrote on the whiteboard, like to their family, hey, it's the death doula, drop me a line, you know, which was really good. Then they rang me and what I did was I supported them and told them what to expect and explained what they might go through the stages how to manage their tiredness, when to call me, you know, and all that kind of stuff. While listening to Kimber and Renee talk, all I can think about is, have we forgotten how to die? We're all going to die. It's a 100% guarantee there. 10 out of 10, nobody gets out alive, right? So, you know, having a body of people or someone you can turn to that has some information and knowledge, uh, has some uh, understanding about death and dying is, is critical. Renee does not see life and death as separate, discrete opposites. For her, it all exists on one continuum. We have a profession that is, I think, trying to restore the incredible importance of the transition that the first and the last breath is, and that it is not disconnected. One is not from the other. They are moments to be treasured and respected. That was Sasha Gadamaya. These stories were produced for the Science Gallery in collaboration with mentors from All the Best. A massive thank you to reporters Sean Roos, Anya Tandon, Serena Raza, and Sasha Gadamaya. Thanks also to mentors Mel Chan, Oli Krusek, Dan Simo, and Danny Stewart. The Yarn is from the Center for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. It's produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Our executive producer is Louisa Lum. I'm Thomas Phillips. See you next week for Breaking the Binaries, Episode 3.